Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello and welcome back to another episode on the Nourish Gut podcast. Today we are being joined by Bernadette and she is actually a uh, naturopath um, that is now part of the team here at Nourish Gut and Carly Raven uh, Naturopath. And I'm so excited to be having a chat with her today, introducing you guys officially to her in a capacity that allows us to dive a little bit deeper, you know, you get to hear her voice, get to little, get to know her a little bit more about, you know, why she became a naturopath and what her and her passions and her experience. So, um, Bernadette is a gut health naturopath. She's also a registered nurse and a yoga instructor, and she's also a mama of three little kids. She has a lifelong obsession with wellness, which actually inspired her career choices. Uh, while she was working as a new graduate um, uh, registered nurse in 2018, she actually experienced debilitating gut health issues. Uh, she was diagnosed with celiac disease and IBS-like symptoms, and she just wasn't getting better. This is what led her to the field of naturopathy and nutrition to find the solutions to symptoms that her doctors simply could not find solutions for. After finding great success with diet therapies, herbal medicine, and microbiome management, she wanted to turn this, her passion, and the results that she found into uh, helping others and the effective tools that she had found. During and after completing her naturopathy degree, she's been focusing on research and education around two areas of interest which she loves, and that is gut health and reproductive health. She's worked in uh, er these areas of health uh, ever since in private practice and also at a functional medicine practice over in Houston, Texas. So, yes, she has just returned to Australia um, from Houston, Texas, which is really, really exciting. And I and I love that we have her back now, um, but I also think that that brings, um, you know, a whole world of um, education and experience uh, for her career. So her passion is to provide evidence-based naturopathic care, and she believes that achieving good health, in particular great gut health, can not only help individuals, but it can affect the health trajectory for many more generations to come. And that is something that I deeply believe as well. So Bernadette, as I mentioned before, is a valued member of the Nourish Gut team, and she actually provides care within our Nourish Gut program, helping our patients um, through coaching, co consults, group calls, you know, all of the things, um, care plan reviews, but she also sees patients one-on-one -on -one at the Nourish Gut Clinic, and you can actually book appointments with her right now via our website. So with all of that said, <laughs> I think it's an absolutely beautiful um, introduction. Um, welcome, Bernadette. How are you? Hi, Carly. Thanks for having me on the podcast, and thanks for that beautiful introduction. You're welcome. I'm just, I'm so excited that uh, I get to introduce you uh, to everyone in this capacity. Uh, we've been working together for many months now and I know how amazing you are and I'm sure through today's podcast everyone's going to uh, be or of your uh, knowledge and experience in the terms of treating gut health issues. I'm so excited to be here and to be working with someone just as passionate about gut health is a very, very special thing. Us gut health, gut health nerds have to stick together, hey? <laughs> so today uh, I want to, like, I obviously wanted to bring you onto the podcast to introduce you and so people can get to know you a little bit more and so that people know that you're available for consultations and that you're working within the program. But I really want to discuss with you today um, about managing celiac disease and what that's like as a naturopath um, and just let's explore the whole land of celiacs, gut health um, and how you've been able to manage that, treat it and then obviously, yeah, how does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic because 
my diagnosis with celiac disease was really my entry into um, into naturopathy and alternative treatments um, because I was diagnosed with celiac disease uh, in my final year of studying to be a nurse. I was in my final year of uni and I had a lot of gastrointestinal issues, but being a typical woman, I didn't really pay much attention to them. Um, I had a lot of diarrhea and I thought, oh, I knew that you could get increased diarrhea before your period. So I'd always think, oh, my period's coming in a week. Oh, it's coming in two weeks. That's what it is. Or um, my gut issues were always worse with stress as they often are. So um, they would flare up around exam time and when things, life was just busy. And as a uni student that was um, living and studying in a different city to, sorry, studying in a different city, traveling back and living um, two and a half hours away in, um, in Hobart. So studying in Launceston, living in Hobart, working part-time as a waitress um, and doing a lot of nursing prac, which is shift work. I put it down a lot of my gut symptoms to just the lifestyle that I was living. And the way that I got diagnosed was not actually through investigating my gut symptoms, but um, it was because I went to the doctor with really bad fatigue um, I was doing my nursing pracs and uh, every time in the hospital that we'd say goodbye to a patient, make up the bed with crisp, clean sheets, I would look at that bed and longingly want to lie down. I would just fantasize about lying down, closing the curtains around me because I was just so exhausted. Uh, and another thing that was going on at the time was that when I was waitressing, it was often my job to look after an upstairs um, dining room. And so every time I ran up the stairs, I'd actually have to hold onto the stair railing at the top while I had a little dizzy spell and caught my breath and um, made sure I didn't black out and then go on to see the customers at the shop. And I knew that that wasn't normal. Um, so that took me to the doctor and he did some testing and found out that I had quite a severe iron deficiency. Um, so sent me on my way with some iron tablets, some nice high dose <laughs> every day. Um, uh, so the form and dosing of the iron, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later, but quite a bit different to how I would normally treat now. But um, so I took my iron tablets for eight weeks came back for a retest and lo and behold, my iron levels were even lower than the first time we tested. Um, and I knew that I had a few family members. I had an uncle and an auntie and a few cousins that had been diagnosed with celiac disease. And I knew that my uncle, um, when he was diagnosed, it was through his iron deficiency um, that that was investigated. So I went ahead and had some more testing and I had the genes for celiac disease and I also had borderline antibodies for celiac disease. Um, and that was, I guess, the start of the journey and my diagnosis. And we'll talk a little bit more about di uh, diagnosis, but what my doctor didn't tell me was um, to stay on the gluten for a scope. I immediately went gluten-free, immediately felt hundred times better my brain fog lifted I stopped having headaches every day which I didn't even realize I was having um I my whole life changed and yeah and I'd say from there my my overall health and wellness got 50% better I didn't get a hundred percent resolution as doctors will say go on a gluten-free diet and that's your cure for the disease and and um that should help you be well. Um, so from there, I had some ongoing um, gut symptoms, which um, I was actually reading in a gluten-free recipe book back in the day um, that was by Sue Shepherd, who's one of the founders yeah. of the FODMAP diet. Yes. Um, I was reading that some people with celiac disease are prone to having FODMAP issues. So that took me along to my doctor um, who'd never heard of FODMAPs and he was looking them up on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> <in the> <laughs> He sent me on my way to a dietitian and I worked with a dietitian um, to implement a low FODMAP diet, which helped my, uh, my symptoms quite a lot. I, I probably was 80% better on that. Um, and then it wasn't until many years later when I was studying to be a naturopath after learning how powerful diet is um, in improving symptoms that I really focused on gut healing. 
Um, and then I found out I didn't need to be on a low FODMAP diet. Um, yeah, the more healing that I did in the gut um, and immune modulation, um, the less I needed to restrict my diet and the more open I could eat, uh, yeah, lots of different foods. So that, of course, gave me a new passion of like, well, all these people on low FODMAP diets could be potentially reintroducing more, some more foods once they do some gut healing. So I've learned a lot in my own personal journey. Um, Absolutely. But yes, I'm always reading research um, and always finding lots of little pearls about um, how celiac disease is linked in with um, a lot of other um, conditions and even changes in the microbiome, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well today. Mm, as you were talking and explaining um, how things unfolded for you, I was sitting here thinking, yes, it's like, absolutely there's celiacs going on but what else you know what was going on in that microbiome you know it's really common for them uh people to also have you know ibs like or SIBO symptoms they could even have SIBO, um you know and fructose smell absorption because of the extreme um damage that's occurred to those villi in the small intestine so yeah it's kind of interesting that um you know, your story is 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 very relevant to a lot of people, I'm sure. And it's not just about um, fixing the celiac disease. It's investigating the entire digestive system, which is so important for everyone suffering from gut issues, no matter what it is, whether you've got IBD or SIBO, always ask yourself what else is going on, especially if, you know, like you, you still had 50% better to get, you know, or to go in terms of symptom improvement. So, Thank you so much for sharing um, your journey um, and I'm sure there's many people that can relate. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, like let's actually discuss for the listeners and someone who, um, you know, because I feel like if you've got celiac disease, you know what it is, um, you might know um, how you've got it and maybe how it's been diagnosed because you've walked that walk. But for somebody who has gut issues um and they're not sure what it is you know why they have these gut issues yet can we explain what actually is celiac disease and then how it affects the body um because i think that provides um maybe just one potential diagnosis option for patients who are suffering um from gut issues and can you also while we're discussing it can we talk about the symptoms um and what symptoms would make you think or like go on and investigate celiac disease absolutely so celiac disease is a genetic condition so it's something that runs in families and um, there are genes linked to the disease and it's an autoimmune disease and like all autoimmune diseases, you must have three things to have the condition, and one of which is the genetic predisposition. The second of which um, is having a leaky gut. So all autoimmune diseases that have been tested have been shown to have a leaky gut around the time of diagnosis, um, and that's increased intestinal permeability. Um, that's actually what I did my dissertation on in my final year of naturopathy, I was looking at um, all the studies that have been done in um, autoimmune conditions and um, the link between the leaky gut and the onset of autoimmune. Wow. And the third thing that all autoimmune diseases must have is a trigger. And in celiac disease, the trigger for the disease is gluten. And that's a protein that's found in wheat, in rye, in barley, and in oats. And I'll just speak a little bit to the oats um, because that's a bit controversial because in America, where I was just living um, for the last six years, oats, uh, you can get gluten-free oats, uh, which is a bit confusing for people with celiac disease. So it's been shown that one in five celiacs will react to oats, four in five won't. Mm. So in Australia, anything, any product that has oats, regardless if they're contaminated with wheat or not, they have to be labelled as gluten. Um, America just has different labelling laws and um, that's why you can get gluten-free oats, which celiac should really take a lot of caution with because they can still potentially be a trigger for the disease. 
Um, so what actually happens in this autoimmune condition? In the small intestine, we have lots of finger-like um, projections. You can think about the lining of the small intestine looking like a shag pile rug with lots of little um, finger-like shag long pile pieces. So they're called your villi. And even on top of those finger-like projection or those um, big shag high pile pieces are tiny little threads called microvilli. You can think about them as being little threads coming off the shag pile pieces. And villi and microvilli um, help to increase the surface area in your small intestine to allow more and um, more absorption of nutrients from your food. There are some other purposes of these microvilli and villi, which um, are to produce some substances to help you break down your food. So lactase is one of them that's produced by the villi, the very end of the villi. So people with celiac disease will often have some lactose intolerance um, because of the damage to um, the part of the villi that produces that um, that disaccharide that helps to break down your lactase. Um, so when people have celiac disease, gluten triggers an immune response that increases inflammation and wears away at both the villi, the microvilli, the hair-like projections, and even the villi themselves. And instead of looking like long finger-like projections, they can look quite stumpy and there's quite a lot of inflammation in between them as well. Now, what this means for the person with celiac disease is that they have a significantly less ability to, um, to absorb their nutrients because they have much um, less um, of a surface area to do that with. It can also mean that they are malabsorbing a lot of um, uh, carbohydrate-related compounds because not only do we produce lactase um, with our enzymes, but a few other compounds um, that help us to digest the FODMAP foods, for example. And so on diagnosis of celiac disease, quite a lot of people have problems with malabsorption. But even after treatment and on a long-term gluten-free diet, some people can have ongoing enzyme deficiencies. So that is something that we need to consider for celiacs, even after being on a long-term gluten-free diet. Some of them may need some long-term um, support for their enzymes. So ways that it shows up in terms of symptoms and affecting people in their everyday lives, a lot of people with celiac disease, with celiac disease will have gastrointestinal symptoms. The most common is diarrhea, um, but constipation can also be present. Um, gas, um, abdominal pain is really, really common. Um, having noisy uh, guts is also a symptom. So if you're someone who eats a meal and a couple of hours later you're just hearing twists and burps and gurgles in the stomach, that is um, also a very strong symptom for celiac disease. Um, but some people have what's called um, silent celiac where they don't have any gut symptoms and they'll instead be picked up for having um, celiac disease because of symptoms of malabsorption of their nutrients. So these are the patients that might have long-term low iron despite having good dietary intake of iron and despite supplementing with iron, they might show up, um, they might be tested for celiac disease because they have osteoporosis and um, that um, is because they haven't been absorbing the nutrients they need to build strong and healthy bones. Um, and a lot more people are being diagnosed with celiac disease and investigated now because they're having mental health issues or neurological issues like migraines uh, and brain fog, because we know that when someone with celiac disease is triggered with that gluten, they can have symptoms in almost every body system. So it can be gut, it can be neurological, it can be skin. So 10 to 20% of people with celiac disease um, present with a rash called dermatitis hepatiformis, which can be on the knees, the elbows, the back commonly. For some people, that severely itchy rash. Um, I do know of a patient who said that um, came on for her on her honeymoon and she was in a third world country and she was 
literally lying on a stone floor and rolling her body along the ground trying to manage this itchiness all over her back. Other, other um, body systems that can be affected by gluten um, ingestion when people have celiac disease include your reproductive organs. So people can have um, really strange menstrual cycles. They can have really bad PMS and even infertility, even um, high incidences of miscarriage. Um, and long-term consequences of untreated celiac disease um, you can have higher rates of almost all types of cancers, especially gastrointestinal cancers. Um, thankfully, not breast cancer. That's one that um, celiacs have a little bit of a break on. But it is really important to have that diagnosis to know if you have celiac disease um, because it's not just simply avoiding gluten to have reduced gastrointestinal symptoms mm -hmm. or reduced brain fog. There's a lot of long-term consequences. Um, such as more significant mental health illnesses, such as cancer, um, that it's really important to know um, if you have it and how strict you have to be in terms of that gluten avoidance. Mm. It's just so much that it affects. And I think um, one of the key things that stood out for me um, was that you know, you reminded me that it doesn't have to be because I instantly think of diarrhea, you know, for celiacs. Um, mm. But I think almost all patients for so many different symptoms should have celiac screening um, done and it ruled out. I actually um, remember just this one patient that I treated in my first couple of years of clinical practice and she had been through the medical system for years, um, just a maze, you know, of just not getting anywhere um, before she seeked um, naturopathic care with us. And um, in that first round of testing that we did, it was like, oh, have you been investigated for celiac? And it blew my mind that it hadn't been done. And she did, she already had an existing autoimmune condition. And that's what, that sparked the thought for me. Um, you know, she had the iron deficiency, like you were saying, but um, yeah, it was kind of like an autoimmune condition that was already there, plus the iron and then her other um, symptoms like fatigue and gut stuff. Um, and we got her results back and she was positive. And this is a lady, a middle-aged lady who had been suffering for years and years and years. So I think, um, I don't know, maybe my advice <laughs> um, right now is that if you have been going through a similar path and you're, you know, you haven't yet being diagnosed or investigated for celiacs that it should be standard for you know these sets of symptoms and really pushing for that um with your gp could be you know something that unlocks um things for you um but we can also do that these investigations as naturopaths it will cost you know you're not going to get it funded through Medicare and things like that. But, you know, if you're really desperate to get it checked and you want to know, um, this is something that we can also do for you just via a referral. So please reach out um, and get in contact, um, you know, if it's something that you think you need to get investigated or you need answers for. And whether it's negative or positive is fine because at least you know whether it's negative or positive and then you can move on to the next potential thing um, and, and you're one step closer to resolving whatever it is that's going on for you so such a great explanation Bernadette um so I don't know I think I've just opened up the world of diagnosis right so mm -hmm. it's pretty confusing I'm going to just explain what's happened to me many times in practice and then can you clarify for us what the proper way to diagnose celiac disease is because I'm sure many people listening here can resonate with going to the GP, um, being tested for celiac disease, but not informed about the need to eat lots of gluten prior to testing, um, number one, to make sure that you're um, getting that autoimmune response that you were talking about before. So you need the trigger to trigger the autoimmune system. So you need to be eating the gluten for the autoimmune system to be triggered to get that response so that the antibodies that we're testing for are firing, you know, and we're going to get that positive result. But sometimes that's also where it stops is the blood tests for celiac. Um, but there are other options. And, yeah, can you just talk us through 
you know, if you have a patient sitting in front of you and you suspect celiac disease, what are your kind of tick boxes in terms of diagnosing celiac disease? Absolutely. And and tacking on from what you were saying, Carly, in terms of if you think this might be you, definitely start going down the route of getting diagnosed. I'd like to say if you think this might be you, don't give up gluten in your diet yet because it's really important for accurate diagnosis that there is exposure to gluten in your diet. So the way that celiac disease is diagnosed is by a couple of different types of testing. The first is um, the genetic test. Um, So there are two different genes, HLA-DQ8 and HLA-DQ2, which are associated with celiac disease. 99% of people with celiac disease will have one of those two genes, which does mean that there is that 1% of people who must have some other gene that hasn't yet been diagnosed. So um, certainly if you're negative for the genes but still have um, very strong positive symptoms, it's still a reason to continue your diagnosis journey. So there's the gene test. Now what I will say is if you have the genes, one or both of the genes, it doesn't mean you have celiac disease. One third or 30% of the whole population has the genes, whereas only about 1% of the whole population has celiac disease. Now, those numbers are rising. They've risen significantly since the 1940s. And there's some evidence to say that in the paediatric population um, that are being diagnosed in the recent years, that the rate is about 3% of of children that are being diagnosed yeah so as these children get older and as future generations come through it will be interesting to see if uh, the numbers get even higher but it already is quite a prevalent one percent um is more people than have that have rheumatoid arthritis and more people that have um Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis so it is relatively common um which is another reason why screening is so important so that's the genetic test. And then the... And the you don't need to eat gluten for that one, do you? For that one, no. You, it doesn't matter what's in your diet. Your genes don't change. Um, so if you are already on a gluten-free diet and you um, want to investigate a little, that's a good place to start. Because mm. yep. you know if it's negative, then it's very, 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 very unlikely that you can it ever develop the disease. Um. The other blood tests that are done are antibody testing, um, anti-endomyosil um, IgA, which is an EMA test, trans um, tissue transglutamase, which is a um, antibody that gets produced right in the surface of the gut as a response to gluten exposure, um, and sometimes an extra test uh, AGA will also be added on, and that one's a bit more important for children. The two um, traditional Antibodies that are tested can be less um, accurate for children. So it's important that we add on that extra one um, when looking at kids. Mm. For those antibodies to be positive, someone needs to have regular gluten exposure to have the antibodies against gluten. And what that means is studies have shown that one to four pieces of bread, the equivalent gluten of one to four pieces of bread for four to eight weeks before the testing. some uh, One study has shown that um, high exposure for two weeks before the testing is accurate if the person has symptoms. Um, but for the most accurate testing, keep gluten in your diet if you haven't taken it out already. Make sure you're having at least two pieces of bread a day or the equivalent. It could be flour tortilla. It could be a muffin. It could be, yeah, any way that you could have your gluten. Um, but really important to have that exposure because if you're on a gluten-free diet, you won't, you may, if you have celiac disease, you may still have some leftover antibodies because it can take months for some sick people, even um, beyond a year for those levels to come down. But for a lot of people, you won't see a positive result if the gluten exposure isn't there. If you have the uh, antibodies present, that is positive and correlated with celiac disease. If they're not present, you still might have celiac disease. 
And the gold standard of diagnosis is actually doing an endoscopy where a camera goes down from the mouth end all the way down to the small intestine. And they'll take some really small sections to biopsy to check the cells to, to, to look for that damage to the villi. And that's the gold standard of actually knowing if someone has celiac disease or not. Now, for some of our patients, um, it's a bit of a conundrum for us as practitioners because our first ethic um, is to do no harm. And so for some of our patients, once they, if they've been on a gluten-free diet or mostly avoiding gluten and they start eating gluten high amounts to prepare for these testing and they can have life-alteringly bad symptoms, it is a bit of a conundrum in terms of do you push hard to get that gold standard diagnosis mm. or especially if there's a family history and if they've got the genes and um, if we can sort of identify some possible triggers for the disease because you have the genes and um, something might trigger that to do with having a leaky gut and that might be a head injury that might be a period of intense stress in your life that might be starting on a new medication high amounts of alcohol consumption. We have to do a little bit of risk-benefit analysis in terms of getting that gold standard diagnosis. And we have to understand as well that for some people, some people need that to take yeah. their disease seriously. You know, from just from a compliance point of view, right? Like, because it's a big deal. Gluten's in everything. I agree. I find that in practice. You know, I feel like some people who don't get it, aren't, they just don't take it as seriously. So it's a really good point. Mm. Yeah. For me personally, I didn't have the endoscopy and my doctor was okay with the fact that I had a strong family history. Once I stopped eating gluten, I felt so much better. Um, and I was someone who would, and I am someone who takes the diet really seriously. And still now when I consume gluten by accident, even trace amounts, I get really sick. Mm. Um, and that in itself is enough to help with my compliance. But some people don't get um, significantly gut sick and um, need to know that they have the potential for that disease. If, you know, untreated people with celiac disease who aren't on a gluten-free diet have a five times higher risk of dying from all causes yeah. so whether that be cancer or heart diseases due to the high inflammation um, or a myriad of other different things um, it's something we yeah we need to know if if possible um, so that yeah to help that compliance on the gluten-free diet and to take that disease yeah. seriously yeah and to educate the people they live with or that might be cooking for them how important this is Absolutely. It should be as serious as a cancer diagnosis, for example, while that may be more extreme, you know, celiac disease outcomes um, can be, you know, uh, just as damaging um, in some cases as well. So I think um, sometimes celiac disease isn't taken seriously and there's a bit of a stigma around it as well. So I think um, trying to break down those walls and taking it seriously is really important. Mm. So what about some practical tips and advice? So patients, maybe they've been diagnosed, um, they danced with the diagnosis, they can't believe it, they love sourdough, they love bread, maybe 90% of their diet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is made up of gluten-containing products. It's like their life is ending, <laughs> you know. Um, it's in beer, so it's like it's literally can be you know, really hard for some people um, to change. And there's a lot of things that they need to change. In fact, it can be almost like a dietary overhaul. So mm -hmm. what, let's be really practical here and like what's some tips and advice, advice, sorry, for people who are newly diagnosed um, and maybe even the ones who are struggling, you know, they're not motivated and they um aren't quite taking it seriously enough um, to be able to maintain this kind of gluten-free lifestyle? What would you say to those people? Absolutely. I, I had a period of dancing with a diagnosis, as you so eloquently said. Um, the year that I got diagnosed was a year when a whole bunch of my friends were turning 21 and there were lots of 21 birthday parties. 
and I would have a few drinks and feel very relaxed and say, yes, I would love a piece of your birthday cake. <laughs> and uh, it, it did take a year of playing with the diagnosis myself and experiencing the next day, not just a hangover from alcohol, but really bad gut symptoms because alcohol plus gluten is um, not a good idea when you already have gut damage. Um, so if anyone is newly diagnosed and really struggling to keep that strict gluten-free diet, I totally empathize. And um, it did take me a year to get on board. And I'm someone who's pretty health conscious as well. So yeah, and educated, you know, you have a whole lot of education behind you. So yeah, I had a nursing degree at that point. <laughs> I knew, I knew. So um, I can totally understand. So that's something to be aware of as well. If you do consume alcohol or anything that makes you feel a bit more relaxed, <laughs> to have, <laughs> even to tell the people around you, if you're at a dinner party or, you know, have your best friends know, um, hang on a minute, you can't have that piece of cake. That's going to make you really sick. So having that accountability can really help and the support of people all around you. That, that can probably be. make something, you know, like I have had um, really close friends who decided to become vegan and whenever our kids would get together or we'd have, I would, I would love being like, okay, what am I going to cater that's vegan? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I just respected their choice and wanted them to feel included. Um, so you'll be surprised at how people are like, okay, and accommodating um, to that and willing to still make you feel included and make you delicious food. Absolutely. And having those close people in your life, being um, aware, educating them that even traces in that can make you sick. So if you're making a cake um, in a bowl that you've just sort of briefly rinsed off from after making a gluten cake and may have traces of wheat flour, that could make you sick. Letting people in in your life know, the ones that you do want and trust to be cooking for you, letting them know how um, significant it is that even trace amounts, 20 parts per million of gluten uh, molecules. So you think about a million uh, specks of flour, of rice flour, if just 20 specks of, of wheat flour um, are in that million um, specks of rice flour, that is enough to trigger autoimmune disease and gut damage. So not having the people in your life that cook for you know that, um, they will take that really seriously and, and know to wash their implements and um, to not be cooking on the same surface. Um, so, yeah, cross-contamination is really important to think about for celiacs. When you're eating out, the very best way to, to avoid cross-contamination, if you're lucky enough to live somewhere um, in a city that has dedicated gluten-free restaurants, they're obviously going to be the safest choice for you where there's no chance of cross-contamination. So if you can volunteer your places for dinner or lunch dates, um, but otherwise, if you're eating out, if you can call ahead and ask the restaurant, I have celiac disease and even trace amounts of gluten can make me very sick is this something you can cater to um and if not then it might be you know eating before you go out and then going out to have a coffee instead of a cake um and asking that question is so important so i've just come off the back of six well four months of traveling since we left texas to move back to australia we um traveled through the states we went to Nevada and Colorado and then traveled a bit in Tassie to see family before we made our way to our current hometown in Margaret River and the amount of times that I asked that question is this of um, an item in the gluten-free menu um, is this appropriate for someone with celiac disease and the answer that I got actually no that falafel that's gluten-free we fry it um, in a vat that also has crumbed fish or um but we could modify it and put it in the oven for you so that it doesn't get contaminated. So something being gluten-free on a menu is not necessarily going to be appropriate for someone with celiac disease. Mm. And still for me over the course of traveling, uh, asking those questions and being careful. I got accidentally glutened a few mm-hmm. times. You've talked about this, <laughs> haven't we? <laughs> and I love oh, your term. I got glutened. <laughs> oh, and I mean, sometimes you can have the best intentions and be as careful as you can. So one of those times um, was in, I was in Las Vegas at a very fancy restaurant that had a gluten-free menu 
And I told them how that I had celiac disease and how important it was. And the very first um, dish they gave me, I could taste soy sauce. And I just asked the waiter, is this uh, tamari wheat-free soy sauce? Is it, or is it regular soy sauce that has wheat? And they, and they came back and said, oh, we're so sorry it has wheat. Um, so, you know, you can take all the precautions and still sometimes have that accidental contamination. And I think when you're um, newly diagnosed and doing that initial gut healing, or if you have been accidentally glutened um, a few times, sort of in recent times, it is really important to be very risk averse and perhaps try and cook at home um, by yourself um, if possible. Mm. But even at home, a few things to be aware of. Um, you can't share a toaster with someone that eats gluten bread. So if, um, if you've got people in the house that eat gluten and other people that don't, um, such as my family, my son has celiac disease, but my two daughters and husband don't. Um, we have a gluten toaster and then Charlie and I, <laughs> Charlie and I will, we don't have a gluten-free toaster, but we'll um, sort of toast our toast on the stovetop. Yeah. Um, it's even sharing spreads like butter or peanut butter jam, um, those things, they cannot be double dipped by someone that has gluten. So you might, if you live in a house with someone else, have your own peanut butter or your own butter or your own mayonnaise that you don't dip the knife in um, to share with someone um, that has celiac disease. So having that awareness of cross-contamination is really important because that can be where someone fails to make progress in their healing when, they, when they're trying to eat gluten-free food. It's the methods as well. Mm. Um, and then I some other... It can easily become quite overwhelming. So I think, you know, from with, you know, today I'm kind of sitting here, I don't have celiac disease, but I'm kind of like, you know, seeing more in depth into what it's actually like to have celiac disease and hearing from someone who even those really small things and the things that we take for granted, like me getting into the butter, you know, with my knife and how that could be an obstacle for someone with celiac disease. So I think, I don't know, I, I would like to say, um, go go tread gently and and give yourself a period of education you know a time frame of like because there's a lot to learn here as well like you know I think not only are you learning about what you can't do but then you've got to come up with the um the solution or the new habit that's associated with that um so give yourself space um while you're learning and this is probably why the treatment plan and working with a naturopath or a nutritionist that can, you know, work with the gut healing and resolving all of the underlying gut stuff and those mechanisms and those inflammatory pathways and the leaky gut that's going on is so important while you're learning that because there's going to be slip-ups, right? You know, that's the reality of it is that there's most likely going to be slip-ups. And, yeah, yeah, I just think making sure you're getting treatment while you're doing the diet stuff is really, really important. What Do you, do you agree? I absolutely agree because it's a very common thing that we'll see patients who've been diagnosed with celiac disease have started the gluten-free diet and they're just not feeling better. Mm. And they feel a lot, a common word I'm hearing um, patients say is I still feel inflamed, whether that be just they, their stomach doesn't feel right or they might still have some um, underlying joint or muscle pain. It's very common for people to have fibromyalgia with, with celiac disease. So there are a lot of things we can do to support these people, um, to not only um, help them with diet education, but helping to um, heal the gut when that we know that a leaky gut or an in- increased intestinal permeability is part of what causes it in the first place and gluten in- exposure, um, obviously, increases that and to help them with their nutrient deficiencies I was talking about iron before and um, we can do a lot more I think in terms of having knowledge of which types of irons are really well absorbed and which um, you know the dosage and how often um, to dose because we know that people who take high dose um, iron in the form that's usually prescribed by the GP that increased intestinal iron that doesn't get absorbed can um, can overgrow bacteria that love to feed on iron, like methane-producing species in the gut. 
which make constipation worse and that can make bloating worse. And, um, yeah, there's a lot we can do in terms of supporting the celiac patients. And, and really, I think a lot of GPs will just focus on the iron or the B12 that get malabsorbed. But you know what? There's a lot of other nutrients we can support. A lot of celiac diseases, uh, patients, studies found still after one year after their diagnosis will have really low levels of essential fatty acids, EPA and DHA. And mm. even that can be associated with mental health challenges. So, yeah, and, and inflammation. And, yep. yeah, there's a lot of different things we can look into to support this patient and help them to feel better faster and, um, yeah, feel better physically and mentally and overall. So can we, obviously, this podcast is designed as general information and I think it's really important that you always seek individualised healthcare um, and treatment plans specific to you because when your practitioner um, is with you, they know the whole picture. But I'd like to ask you kind of, you know, in general, <laughs> so no one run out and buy these products, please ask your naturopath or nutritionist, <laughs> um, what are your kind of um, go-to supplements um, when it comes to celiac and natural remedies? Um, you know, I'm sure there's lots, but can you maybe list a couple that you love um, prescribing and why? Absolutely. So in terms of healing the gut, uh, my top three would be glutamine, uh, zinc and vitamin A. And I've got to say with glutamine, we do have a lot of gut healing products that contain glutamine, but often not in high enough doses. Mm. Um, so yeah, doses of around 20 to 30 grams of glutamine in studies have been shown to help um, speed up that gut healing in patients with leaky gut, even in patients that have had um, radiation treatment, um, that which causes damage to the gut. So glutamine, absolutely, for healing the gut wall zinc um, because uh, celiac disease can cause a zinc deficiency but it also helps to heal the gut and it helps with the immune response in the gut we want to really calm down the immune response when we're treating celiac disease and vitamin a is such a beautiful food for the cells of the gut wall um, and helps uh, with healing any sort of mucosal um, mucosal tissue in the body so those would be my favorite nutrients and then probiotics are another absolute favorite. Um, and there are, it's, we sort of prescribe the strain that's appropriate depending on symptoms, but um, we might go for like a Saccharomyces boulardii strain, um, which helps to calm down the immune response. It can help with diarrhea. It can help actually with um, malabsorption of nutrients. So we were talking about lactose. Um, malabsorption and lactose intolerance and that um, probiotic by itself can help a lot with um, increasing tolerance to lactose and other um, types of carbohydrates um, but there are other strains of probiotics that we might prescribe depending on um, if we want to increase iron absorption if we want to help with constipation um, if we want to help with pain in the stomach um, and digestive enzymes, as I was talking about, some people with celiac disease will never regain um, full capacity for producing digestive enzymes. So that's something we need to consider. And sometimes a, sh a short term, and I'd like to underline, bold, highlight short term <laughs> <laughs> restriction of the FODMAPs um, while there is gut damage. Um, and can help with symptoms a lot. While there's still inflammation, while there's a lack of um, producing the enzymes that break down short-chain car uh, carbohydrates, um, yeah, a, a period, a short period of FODMAP um, restriction can be really useful while you're doing that gut healing to help with symptoms. Thank you so much. I think um, I think it's really important um, around the dosage of glutamine as well. Um, you know, I think that that is definitely for any practitioner who's tuned in. Um, I think that's a really great takeaway to make sure that you know we're looking at the studies that have been done. Um, you know, for these type of diseases and making sure that we're not just relying on the supplement companies and their dosages in these supplements that we're going beyond that and finding. Um, 
supplements and you may need to supplement glutamine as a simple rather than in a complex formula um, to get this patient or those patients with celiac disease um, the results that they need. So thank you so much, um, Bernadette, for coming and sharing your knowledge and your time with us today. I think there, it's a really big topic um, and there's so much to cover. I feel like we could have dived even. It's always the case. I'm always blown away mm-hmm. by how like we get on a podcast and we've got like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to discuss it. It's like, that'll be heaps of time. But the more I start getting into all of these different juicy topics with all the people I interview, it's like, you can just chat about these things for so long. So um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for your time and for sharing your knowledge um is there anything else before we kind of officially wrap up that you would like to mention or suggest like a parting message at all to someone who might you know have celiac disease or be suffering from gut issues I think um the most important message is to get support if you need it and um that's part of what we do and you might need support in terms of getting the right right diagnosis or knowing the options if you have and if you think that it all might be from celiac disease but if you have a negative celiac diagnosis what else could it be because that's part of our job is to be investigators of symptoms and really dive to the root cause Um, but if you are diagnosed and you're struggling with sort of not healing or getting better like you think you should or you want to be that's another really good time to reach out so we have our Nourish Gut Clinic, um, where Carly and I are focused on helping people with gut health issues. So feel free to reach out. We, we have discovery calls where you can just sort of touch base um, and talk about your needs and we can let you know the ways in which we could help. Absolutely. Or if you're ready to get going, you can just book in an initial treatment as well. So whatever you need to do. So thank you again, Bernadette. uh, And thank you for listening to the Nourish Gut podcast. And please don't forget to like, review and comment on the podcast. Uh, We'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Did you like what you heard? Leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about my Nourish Gut program or the Nourish Gut Kids membership, head over to my website. Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.